0: Today, it's less than 1% of the population feeds the other 99%. So about 1% of our population is in the ag industry. We've seen this, you know, 100-year march away from connection to source.
1: So who feeds the world? Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And today, I want to talk about food. So let me back up. A few weeks ago, I was on a long drive And I was listening to a conversation between one of my favorite people, Rob Bell, and his guest about some really sobering statistics about the transformation in food production over the last century and how that transformation has shaped so much of the way we live our lives today. So I wanted to spend some time considering the consequences of our connection with food growing so desperately impersonal, which is a very modern departure from the way humans have fed ourselves since ancient times, how the percentage of Americans growing food has plummeted in the last hundred years, how the cheaper food we consume now has led to the dramatic increase in healthcare costs, which of course is approaching about a third of all the money the federal government spends every year. And I wanted to spend some time thinking about the extent to which fixing the way we feed ourselves might just be able to help us fix our politics. So Our team reached out to this extraordinary guest. His name is Jeff Katch, and he's the CEO of the Rodale Institute. They are a global leader in regenerative organic agriculture and have been for over 70 years. And before becoming the CEO, Jeff served as the chief impact officer at the Rodale Institute. And he was also the managing director and vice president of Rodale Inc.'s organic life and prevention magazines on really short notice, he and his team were gracious enough to host me at their headquarters in eastern Pennsylvania. They gave me a tour of the farm, where their groundbreaking research is done by a team of scientists, and also where they run their veteran farmer training program. And after all of this, we sat down for a pretty wide-ranging talk about food and our relationship with it. So I hope you enjoy. Jeff catch. welcome to Politicology. Ron,
0: it's a true honor to be here. Thank you so much for hosting me.
1: This is going to be so much fun. So let's, uh, I got so much I want to talk to you about, but let's talk about dirt (laughs) or soil as Chloe, uh, your communications director, corrected me earlier today when we were touring the site. Um, What's the difference between dirt and soil?
0: Sure, there is a true distinction (laughs) there. And to most people, we never think of those as distinct, uh, separate matters in creation. And so, yeah, soil is alive. So soil at its fullest capacity, is one of the most living, breathing organisms on the planet. There's something like, scientists at Rodale Institute would tell me that there's something like 10 billion microorganisms in just one teaspoon of healthy soil. So to put that in perspective, there's more microorganisms in one teaspoon of healthy soil than there are people on the planet. So soil is alive, dirt is dead. Uh, And so that's how we would distinguish between the two.
1: Okay, this is the question I really wanted to open the conversation with, which is, If soil could talk to us, what would
0: it be saying right now? Feed me. (laughs) Rest me. Water me. (laughs) Uh, I'm a living, breathing organism just like you. And by the way, you depend on me for life.
1: Yeah. And all the things that it does for us. Okay. Let's back up. What drew you to organic uh, regenerative agriculture?
0: As I... Contemplate that question. It takes me all the way back to childhood. So I've been on a lifelong journey, and a lot, a lot, a lot of the journey was comprised of um, three seminal moments that had to do with my personal health. So starting at the age of six, I grew up, uh, you know, in in a middle class household, two wonderful parents, but had a lot of health issues as a young boy. And distinctly remember from about the age of four to thirteen, lots of time spent at the doctor's office and home from school sick. And around the age of thirteen, it was sort of like a Uh, a moment of reckoning with myself where I said, I don't want to live like this anymore. And I remember asking my mom to buy me a copy of a magazine uh, when she went to the store next. This would have been in the early to mid-90s. And so um, pre-social media, my mom brought home a copy, a glossy copy of Men's Health magazine. And I remember uh, reading the magazine cover to cover multiple times and making copious notes on every page. And dog earring, and then eventually making a grocery list, which I then handed back to my mom and said, okay, next time you go to the grocery store, buy me all these foods. Because this magazine I just read told me that if I eat, if I change my diet and begin begin eating this way, then I would get healthier. And I remember over the course of the next couple of months, uh, having dramatic changes to my health, um, got off all the medications, was able to begin participating in sports, lost a lot of weight and, um, just remember it being a real transformational moment. And fast forward to my early 20s, graduated from college with a degree in marketing. And a lot of the reason that I pursued a degree in marketing is because I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my adult life in terms of my professional journey. But I knew I was good at selling things. And I also had a deep passion for health and wellness. And so a dear friend of mine at the time said, you should consider going to work for this publishing company called Rodale. And I'm like, what's Rodale and where is it? And it turns out that it was this global powerhouse of a media company based seven miles from the very home I grew up in, where I first consumed men's health, which was one of their properties. And so it was this full circle moment, um, ended up going to work for the Rodale, uh, enterprise in, in 2001 And spent 16 collective years there working in the media industry, and we were really the largest independent health and wellness publisher. But a couple years into that journey in in a surprising career in media, I crossed paths with a man named Jeff Moyer, who at the time was the farm director of the nonprofit also started by the Rodale family called the Rodale Institute. And what was fascinating is that this nonprofit existed out in a rural part of Pennsylvania, about 20 miles from where the publishing company was headquartered. And so these two enterprises, those started by the same family, were actually very separate from one another. And and there wasn't a lot of communication between both. And the more I dove in, 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 I'd say around about the year 2005 or six, I became acquainted with the work of Jeff Moyer and the Rodale Institute. And I thought to myself, why isn't everyone talking about this? Because we all knew there was sort of this DNA in the culture of Rodale that was very redemptive and quite, and quite ahead of its time in terms of the philosophy around health, wellness, and sustainability. And what I came to learn is that a lot of the philosophy that undergirded the media company and the mission was actually born out of the work of the Rodale Institute. So I was captivated from that point forward. Fast forward to the year 2016, and I got invited to serve on the board of directors of this nonprofit, which was a huge honor. And then 11 months in, I got very sick. And so at the time, I was the senior vice president of the largest health magazine in the world called Prevention. And I was a sick 36-year-old man home from medical leave and literally couldn't, it was so incapacitated, I couldn't do my job. So that became, yet again, the, the sort of the third seminal moment where I went through our traditional medical system i had gone through six doctors thousands and thousands of dollars of unreimbursed medical expenses and 3 months in found no no cause or no reason for my health collapse i then found my way to a functional medicine doctor who was able to begin finding some answers to this sudden health collapse and that doctor taught me about the connection between regenerative farming and what he practiced which was regenerative healthcare and he said jeff you have some, a chronic illness and I don't have a silver bullet. There's no, there's no particular medicine that's going to like fix this overnight, but you will, you will heal if you, if you follow the protocols that I have. We're going to change your diet, your lifestyle, and we're going to farm your body back to health. And he oh, literally said those wow. words and that was like, yeah. that would have been March of 2017. And within a few months, I started feeling better and uh, got back to work. And I resigned from my work in the media industry on July 1st, 2017, to come be the chief impact officer at the Rodale Institute.
1: And you've been here since then? Yeah. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit more about Rodale Institute. So not the publisher. Uh, I remember uh, reading Men's Health way back in the day, but then it was sold to Hearst, I think. That's right. The family
0: dissolved uh, the publishing company six years ago now. So about a year after I left, um, the media industry has gone through massive shifts, as you know, and- print media has become more and more consolidated. And so um, the family, you know, felt that the the company would flourish uh, under another owner. And so the Hearst Corporation is a massive privately held media company. And so that's where those, those properties exist now.
1: Okay. So Rodale Institute is focused on agriculture. Can you explain where Rodale sits in the landscape of agricultural companies and what you're, what, what is the mission? What are you trying to do? And, uh, and, and yeah, where does it sit in the landscape?
0: Let me be clear that the Rodale Institute, is, though it was started by a family, it was started by J.I. Rodale in 1947. It is now a standalone independent nonprofit governed by a board of directors. Um, there are still two Rodale family members that sit on the board, but it is its own entity and relies, frankly, on uh, public and private funding to do what it does. So we are an independent nonprofit, and it's, we're trying to change the way we produce food in this country. And ultimately, what we're trying to do is connect soil health with human health. uh, 75 years ago, when J.I. Rodale started the Rodale Institute, he actually named the organization the Soil and Health Foundation. And it was birthed out of his own fascination with agriculture. J.I. Rodale was not a farmer. He was actually a wealthy entrepreneur from New York City. Uh, he and his brother were born into, actually into poverty, but in their early 20s had some success. Uh, they started a business called Rodale Manufacturing. Today, that company is known as Lutron. So they made their money in electrical switch gears. Mm-hmm. And right after World War One, they were looking at the books. J.I. was actually an accountant by trade. So he was like a wizard with numbers. And he's looking that, looking at the numbers and saying, you know, we could lower our labor, our overhead, our real estate, if we move the business out of New York City and out to a rural part of the world. And so they landed on Emmaus, Pennsylvania, which is a little community outside of the Lehigh Valley, about an hour and a half from New York City. He moves his family out um, from New York City to, to, to run the company. But he remembers as a young boy that he too had a lot of health problems, which is interesting. So he remembers growing up, he actually grew up in a very unhealthy lineage where his father and his uncles did not live past the age of 53. But every summer, his family would send him out to summer camp, and I think the summer camp was somewhere out in uh, southeastern Pennsylvania. And he remembers that his health symptoms would clear up when he'd come out to the countryside. Wow. So he associated farms with health. Huh. So what does he do? He takes a little bit of his wealth and buys a farm. Uh, that farm is now owned by the Rodale Institute. It's still part of our our, um, our our story. But that when he bought that farm, he had never farmed a day in his life, and he starts going from one expert to the next. And I would imagine that he was mostly talking to our land grant universities, like experts at uh, Penn State, uh, Rutgers, Cornell. Those are the three land grants here in the mid-Atlantic. And almost to a person, the advice that he writes about in his journals that he was getting was, oh, J.I., you have no, you don't know how to farm, and now you own a farm. Well, if you want to know how to farm, it's actually really simple. You go out and you buy these things called inputs, which were chemicals. Uh they would be things to kill weeds, things to improve the fertility of the soil, and um, ultimately nitrogen, and, uh, and also pe- pest control. But then the more he inquired about what these inputs were, he realized that they were synthetic, uh, and he would ask the people that were making recommendations around their use, well, can someone please explain to me what magic would happen in the soil to take these harmful yeah. contaminants inputs and turn them into healthy food? And of course, no one could answer that question. So that led him to his, uh, his thesis, which he actually wrote these words on a literal chalkboard. <laughs> and his, and is, this would have been in May of 1942. He said that healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. And five years later, he started the Soil and Health Foundation with the goal of connecting soil health with human health.
1: And that's the legacy that the Rodale Institute carries forward. That's
0: correct. Wow. Today, we are a global nonprofit where um, we've gone through a significant growth in the last five years. And we are on a mission to connect soil health with human health by putting hard science to this idea of regenerative organic agriculture. So in a lot of ways, Rodale Institute is functioning like an independent University. Yeah. Uh, We have a team of 17 PhD scientists. We have a team of educators. And then we have a team of consultants, which are like extension agents. And when you sort of add those things up, we're really filling a void that the land grant system has left us. Uh, And we're really trying to make a new way forward for farmers in America.
1: So before we go on about a new way forward for farmers in America, I'd like to orient listeners. To the relationship between humans and food. And on the podcast episode that I listened to you with with Rob, you laid out some really, really astounding statistics about how that has changed over the last century. I don't have to run through all of them, but can you sort of paint a picture for people about how that's changed, especially for the last 70 years? But the one that's the one that I'm thinking of now is. How many people used to be involved in some way with the land, with growing food, and now just how few people are, and what that's done to the way we live?
0: Sure, yeah, we are living a we are a disconnected, divorced society uh, from nature. And if you were to go back to 1900, so what about uh, 125 years ago? Almost, almost a hundred percent of the population would have been involved or engaged in the agricultural process in some way. It was just simply the way of, it was a way of life to live on this earth. You had to be connected to food, your food source, Uh, whether it was animal husbandry and livestock, uh, vegetable production, you know, apiaries, whatever it may be, you know, both chickens and eggs. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Most, most homes relied on, you know, some sort of a backyard or, or homestead source of food. Uh, I would imagine if you lived in an urban environment, you were still reliant on livestock for transportation and for uh, you know your way of life. And so, in that regard, most humans on the earth were engaged or connected to agriculture in some way. Now today, 125 years later, I do believe that it's less than 1% of the population feeds the other 99%. So about 1% of our population is in the ag industry We're yeah. actual, actual farmers producing food. So we've seen this, you know, 100-year march away from connection to source.
1: <sighs> it's so sad. So who feeds the world?
0: Often, uh, people that feed us, the people that rely uh, that we rely on for our food, are often much different than us. They think differently than us. They vote differently than us. They live in places differently than us. But um, predominantly, rural America is who feeds us. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know, particularly when as it relates to organic agriculture, you know, it's such an emergent market, and oftentimes um, both both actually on the conventional side and on the organic side, we're very reliant on on imports. Mm So in the United States, a country that is an ag-based country, we have some of the most fertile farmland in the world, if not the most fertile. We're still reliant on importing crops from other countries, which is just astounding That's insane. to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Okay, um, you talk about fertile country. It reminds me of Ukraine mm-hmm. uh, and the and the black black soil they have there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so farming as extractive. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about this. Um, because as we've moved away from actually growing food, and I grew up in rural Nevada, we had chickens and ducks and uh, uh, turkeys and geese. Uh, like we we grew a lot of stuff that we ate, but we also you know went to the store and we couldn't get it. But so many people haven't had that experience, and I recognize that. Especially as we've moved away from actually growing food, it's easy to think about the importance of seeds in plant growth, but we forget about the soil and we see it as as static as dead dirt. How do the conditions of soil change over time? And what does that mean for farming? And I'm remembering now a conversation I had with Dan Barber, who I know you know, uh, of a uh, chef at Blue Hill at Stone Barn, and he, he used a checking account metaphor. <laughs> like you, can, you, you can't take out more nutrients from the soil than you put back in. What's happening to the way we deal with the soil now as we feed the world, as rural America feeds us?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, agriculture, since the advent of industrial agriculture about 50 to 70 years ago, it's only in the last 70 years, 70 to 80 years, that we've begun introducing chemicals and highly industrial mechanisms into the agricultural process. And so farming has really shifted um, to become a lot more, more like mining. It's become very extractive. How much stuff can I take out of the earth. In other words, yield. Yield is sort of the the hallmark or the mantra of most farmers today. And we've built an agricultural system based on a commodity system. And so at its core, it's about extraction. Most of the food that we produce in the United States isn't even food. We're we're producing commodity-based crops like corn and soybeans that are going into industrial applications, the ethanol market, and feed for, for livestock. So over the last 70 years, we've sort of reordered the agricultural system to become uh, as, as industrial as possible. We've taken the animals out of that system. We've put them in buildings. Mm -hmm. And so you have animals living in confined feedlot operations. Uh, Then you've taken all that ag land that was once grazed, which that, that cycle of animals and crops is actually mimicking nature Uh, in that, that system that was present on this planet for thousands and thousands of years is actually what built the healthy, so fertile soils in the Midwest. So we used to have bison that would graze from Atlanta to, to Saskatchewan uh, on an annual basis, and so that rumination, the animals grazing the prairie grasses, that's what built those rich soils. Well, we've basically we've 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 disintegrated our our agricultural system over the last seventy years in the name of uh, economies of scale and. What Rodale is espousing is that we need to reintegrate the food system. Yeah. Uh, again, much of the food that we are producing is not even ending up on Americans' plates, and so we we need to change that. And that's at the heart of Rodale's work.
1: So we're growing a lot of things, but we're not eating those things.
0: That's correct, and we're not replenishing. I, that was the key. The yeah. the, the key uh, to the to the to your question is that uh, because of the nature of the industrial agricultural process that we've created through. Intensive tillage and uh, significant chemical inputs, uh, farmers are not cycling nutrients back into the soil. And therefore, our soils are degrading at very alarming rates.
1: So, I, I want to talk a little bit about how we have constructed the system of incentives the way that it is now. Um, and one of the things that we hear from, uh, we'll say, big ag. Uh, for lack of a better term, but people are will will know that that means you know lobbyists for major commercial agricultural companies will say we feed the world, mm-hmm. and so this is this is the way we have to do it, mm-hmm. and it has been optimized for efficiency mm-hmm. uh, to extract as much as possible from the soil and extract as much as possible is oriented around value, mm-hmm. how much how much can we make on what we pull out of the soil and that's what's led to commodities, right? Commodity crops as opposed to food that we're going to eat. Mm-hmm. How do we get there? Mm-hmm. How did we get to the place where we're so distant, where, where, where the process of growing food is so abstracted away from the way people consume yeah. food? When you go to the grocery store, I think a lot of, a lot of people don't know where it comes from. <laughs> they don't know yeah. where it comes from and because they've never seen it up close. And at a very sort of cellular level that feels like a bad thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so far from nature. Yeah. But but Big Ag will will tell us this is the way it has to be because otherwise we wouldn't be able to feed the world. And that's, that's what America does. So I, what's wrong with that story?
0: Yeah. First of all, Ron, when's the last time that you sat down at your dinner table to a bowl of corn or soybeans? <laughs> yeah, never. So I would argue when people ask our, you know, can organic truly feed the world? I would, I would say, are we feeding the world? <laughs> um, because the nutrition that we're the quote unquote nutrition that we're extracting from most of America's farmlands is not, is not feeding anyone. Uh, at the heart of it, where, you know, we, we see, we've seen this dramatic, uh, inflection in, in our GDP spending in 1960, we were spending something like twice as much on food as a nation than we were on healthcare. So like $2 to $1 today, we're approaching 4.2 trillion on healthcare. So the, I think those numbers have more than flipped. We're spending at least double, maybe triple on healthcare, quote unquote, healthcare than we are on food. So we've, how we got here, Ron, is that we've lost our, we lost our values Um, you know, we have asked our farmers for cheap food. So I would argue that most consumers in America are responsible for where we are today as a food system. our Our nation's farmers don't wake up in the morning and say, how can we make people sick? They're just simply delivering a product that we ask them for. And as a society, we've lost our value of food and nutrition. So I believe that we are living at a time in human history where we need to reorient ourselves around food as medicine. And uh, the commodity-based system is predicated on, you know, uh, Earl Butts was a, uh, a secretary of agriculture, I think during the Nixon era, who basically told farmers, go big or go home, produce as much as you can, make your farms as big as you can, let's produce a lot of stuff and let's become a net export, you know, nation. Um, and, and, you know, that system is making us sicker and sicker and our planet uh, unhealthier and more unhealthier. <sighs>
1: Okay. L- let's talk about the difference between regenerative and sustainable agriculture. Those two things are not the same. Um, and then if you throw organic in there, that creates uh, a- another category of agriculture. H- help us parse the sure. difference between the way most farmland mm-hmm. is worked now mm-hmm. in America versus regenerative uh Agricultural sure. and regenerative organic agriculture. What is help us understand? The Absolutely,
0: difference. Yeah. sure. So let's think of it like a continuum. And okay. starting on one end of the continuum, you have conventional agriculture, which I would call chemical agriculture. Okay. Uh, and moving down that continuum, uh, regenerative, and then organic, and then the sort of the the opposite end of the spectrum would be regenerative organic. So we'll come back to that. Okay. A little, little history lesson here. Our founder, J.I. Rodale, is widely recognized as the person who brought the word organic into our mainstream vernacular. Uh, he called um, his concept of agriculture organic farming. And now there were some other people that certainly influenced that thinking, but he coined it that. Along comes his son, Robert Rodale, who took over the Rodale Institute in 1971. And Bob Rodale was a world traveler, total visionary, hmm. a kind of a mystical man, Um. And his father was an incredible mind, but his son was a second-generation, even more visionary leader Mm. who began to look at broken agricultural systems. He would travel a lot to places like Asia, Africa, Russia, and he was studying these systems that were fundamentally broken. And it was around the time that the word sustainable was coming into, into our consciousness. And he thought that that was a terrible word, especially as it related to agriculture, because he would see these broken agricultural systems and and say to himself, there's nothing here to sustain. This system is fundamentally broken. But then he would study the soil. And he, you know, in the same way that we began this conversation today, we talked about soil being alive. And he was saying, wait a minute. If we as farmers can begin to focus our efforts and our energies on building the health of the soil, guess what? the plants in that system, they'd get healthier too. Uh, The people and the animals and livestock consuming that food, they're going to get healthier too. Uh, If that's the case, then my bottom line is going to improve as a farmer because more and more people in the community are going to buy my food because it's more nourishing, it's more nutrient-dense, it tastes better. Uh, And therefore, everything in that system gets better and better and better and better over time. And so he called it regenerative agriculture. So his father coined the term organic. Robert Rodale coined the term regenerative. At Rodale Institute, we call it the regenerative organic agriculture. Now, today, you, the 58 of the world's 100 largest food companies have a, quote, regenerative agricultural strategy. Hmm. So you're beginning to see this yeah. more and more. In, it's catching uh, on. It's catching on, and you're yeah. beginning to see a lot of people and companies and brands talking about regenerative agriculture. Now, regenerative agriculture by itself means everything and nothing. It's not. There's no defined standard to that word. Uh, what it what it means is that farmers are beginning to bring more biological methods forward into their agricultural practice. So, chemical conventional farmers are beginning to practice more no-till practices. They may be reducing their chemical inputs. They may be planting cover crops and getting fertility from biological methods. So, I would see regenerative is a great step on that continuum. But Rodale believes that chemicals have no place in agriculture. And so that's why we stand behind the USDA definition of organic. And then that that highest bar, all the way at that other end of the continuum, is what Rodale and some other partners came forward with five years ago. We created a whole new standard Mm. in agriculture called ROC, Regenerative Organic Certification. And that is governed by the Regenerative Organic Alliance, our partners. And it is now the newest high bar standard in agriculture. It is a standard, and it takes into account soil health. Animal welfare and social fairness. How are the farm workers in that system being treated? Are they being paid a fair wage? Do they have access to healthcare? Yeah. So, to us, to Rodale, that is the crown jewel that we want every farmer in the world to be working toward.
1: So, you can go to a store and look for ROC as a label on your food pro- on your produce on your food products.
0: That is absolutely correct. So, okay. that standard was actually authored. By Rodale and some other partners, it now is a standalone nonprofit, and there are the biggest food companies in the world are now earning their Rock certifications. So, if you go onto the Regen Organic website, you'll you'll see a long list of all the brands at your grocery store that are that are earning that standard. Okay. But uh, it's a very exciting time for agriculture. Okay,
1: this feels like a really perfect point to pivot to uh, how much this kind of food costs, because there's a there's a conception that uh, organic food is really expensive and that it's a luxury for people who can afford it to eat well, to eat nutrient dense food costs more money. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the narrative. Um, can you tell us whether that's true? Has it been true? Is it changing? I mean, um, the, your, your communications, uh, person told me this morning, Chloe, as we were touring the site that, uh, organic Food hotspots, organic agriculture hotspots, end up reducing poverty. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk about this relationship between how much the food costs and how healthy it is and how nutrient dense it is. Yeah, where do we go?
0: Yeah, sure. So Ron, you know, we we talked about this a little bit earlier. There's the cost, and then there's the cost. (laughs) Yes, right. Let's think about costs differently. We've we've lost our way as a society. We've lost our value on food, and um, therefore, you know, I would say that as a society, by and large. If we reoriented our values and the ways in which we spent our time and money, then no, proper, healthy, organic, nourishing food, in large part, can be afforded by most people in our in our nation and around the world. Uh, but we, again, we, it would require sacrifice somewhere else. Um, but I would argue that it's the best investment you can make because the, the, the true cost of eating food that isn't nutritious for us. Is quite significant, uh, and we see that as evidenced in, in the healthcare system that we have. So, I believe that with with reorientation of our own personal household investments, that we could begin to eat much healthier. Nourishing food and maybe spend a little mo- bit more money up front to do that, but we're going to spend a lot less money on the back end at the doctor's office. So that's one way of looking at this.
1: We and should that, say there's, sorry to interrupt you, but there's research to support that externalization of costs when it comes to food and healthcare. That's I, right. I, yeah. Yeah. We're not and, just making this up.
0: Yeah. And I'm, you know, and I, and I, uh, and I would also say there's a lot of work to do on the policy side too yeah. to begin incentivizing our doctors. Uh, to become frontline of offense, or yeah. you know, as 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 it relates to this idea of food as medicine, I'll quickly mention to you that the Rodale Institute launched a very unique initiative uh, last year called the Regenerative Healthcare Conference, and it was born out of my own experience, both um, my journey uh, battling Lyme disease seven years ago, and how food became my greatest healer. And then four years ago, I was invited to speak at a national accredited healthcare conference. You know, doctors get money from their uh, employer to go to these continuing medical education symposiums and i got asked to speak at one of those about regenerative organic farming so here i am in the middle of a hotel in downtown san francisco in this giant ballroom speaking to 1200 doctors that paid a lot of money to be there um and they were like hanging on my every word they were so interested in what i was teaching on that day and i and I realized that, um, I later realized that most doctors get on average seven hours of nutrition training in their $500,000 education. So we have this entire medical system that doesn't even know how to begin talking about food and agriculture and nutrient density and nourishment. So I thought to myself, yeah. these doctors are, no, no pun intended, but hungry yeah. for this knowledge. Yeah. And I, as I drove away that day, I thought to myself, what would happen if we... Brought a conference like that to a farm, and we hosted a international healthcare conference at Rodale Institute's global headquarters. And we got doctors' hands in the soil, and we taught them about these concepts of farming, and uh, nutrient density, and soil health. Would people come? And I, so we got a, a couple private family offices to donate some money to Rodale to get give us some startup funding to launch the conference. We had over five hundred doctors apply. Uh, we were only able to accept 70 into the cohort. And we had doctors come from seven countries to this conference. And so it was astonishing. Uh, but I do I, I mentioned that to say, Ron, yeah. that I think um, you know, to your point about cost, yeah. This is all within reach. Okay. Yeah. Like a new, a new paradigm in how we live on the earth is well within reach, but it takes consumers waking up to the idea of being involved in where their food comes from, how that food was produced, and becoming more participatory in the agricultural process. And we can talk about yeah. know, some very practical ways of how people can do that.
1: I'd I love I to hear some more practical ways, especially about the food hotspots and poverty. That really caught my attention. I would just... Uh, back up what you just said because my sister told me in medical school that she got very very little nutrition training mm-hmm. and and the doctors I'm uh, medical family there's very little uh, attention paid to nutrition the food we put in our body every single day I don't understand why
0: yeah and it's the same way we're training our farmers and yeah. so conventional you know farm young farmers that are entering the system that get that go to the land grants you know land grant universities by the way were started under Abraham Lincoln's mm-hmm. administration and. Um, it's a, in the 1860s, he set up a a system such that every state in the nation would have a university that teaches agriculture. And that's where the farmers in that state would go to get advice. Yeah. And that system, um, over the last 70 years has become largely co-opted by big ag interests. So the chemical companies Mm -hmm. are now endowing these universities. You can go to Iowa State and see the Monsanto library, like the ethanol
1: in South Dakota. Oh yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so the same thing has happened in our medical system. You know, the medical, uh, educational system has been co-opted by the pharmaceutical industry. And so our doctors are being trained problem solution, Hmm. you know, treat a symptom with a pill. Yeah. The same could be said about our agricultural system. Young farmers that are learning about the future of agriculture are learning about weed management and pest management and soil fertility, and the solutions they're being taught are, here's the chemical for that, here's the chemical for that, here's the chemical for that. So you can see these two systems are literally running parallel to one another, and I think that's why, in large part, we we are where we are today.
1: Let's go back to the practical things that people can do.
0: Yeah, yeah. So this is about reconnecting humans with the earth. Yeah, Um, you know, central to the work of Rodale Institute is to not only show farmers a better way forward, uh, a more uh, a more profitable way forward, by the way, um, but also a more ecologically sound way of producing food. But I also think those farmers will only um, be successful if we have a consumer demand for what they're producing, and so we as a society need to wake up to better food, better nutrition. And, you know, I mentioned earlier about the divorce from our agricultural process where 1% is producing food for 99%. Well, there's still ways that we can be involved in that process. I think one of the most practical ways is that I, this may sound so trite, but every, everybody should get to know a farmer like yeah. why is it why is that such a foreign concept <laughs> that we as individual people would actually know somebody yeah. in our community who produces food for our community yeah. whether you live in New York City or Memphis Tennessee or you know Des Moines there's fa- there's these thriving markets that are that exist in almost every town in America now where over the last you know 10 to 20 years we've seen a resurgence in farmers markets and we're seeing more and more young farmers come online that are quite entrepreneurial. Um, most of them are um, using regenerative and organic methods to produce food. And they rely on these community markets to sell their products. And I think that that, that is just one of the most easy and enjoyable ways to participate in the agricultural process is to, to, to make it a regular habit to visit these markets. Yeah. Um, there are points of community engagement. There are ways for you to get to know your neighbor, but there are also yeah. ways to get to, know, to build a relationship with your farmer. And so it's something that I take great delight in is, is, is that number two, um, in 2020 during the pandemic, during the spring of the pandemic, the national gardening association reported that we saw 22 million new gardens planted in America. That's that spring. And it was the most growth in gardening since the victory garden era and world war II. Mm -hmm. And I think that that was a very, um, obviously a very traumatic time for most Americans. And I find it fascinating that the way that we deal with trauma is to, to connect with nature, to go oh. plant a garden. And there's something to be said about that. So I believe that we're living at a moment where we, as a society, could begin ourselves to re-engage yeah. with agriculture by planting something in the backyard. Now, not everyone yeah. has the luxury of living in a climate where we can have food growing 12 months a year in our backyard, but right. but that process is part of the reconnection and the reorientation. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, I really believe it's important for us to support uh, food retailers that are building local and regional food economies. Again, most, you know, I love to I, I travel off my job, but one of my greatest joys of traveling is to discover the local markets, the local restaurants, the places that are supporting the local ag community. Yeah. And I, I think that when we begin to engage in, um, in investing our money in our community, in localized food systems, we're building a better world. Uh, there's sort of a, 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 a concentric circle. There's sort of a ripple effect from how we direct our money and our energy. And these are very low-hanging ha- low, low fruit, easy ways of really building a better food system. <sighs>
1: Okay. The food system we have now is very clearly not serving us very well. Um, And a lot of that has to do with the incentive structures that the federal government's put in place for farming. If you were uh, in an elevator with um, Kevin McCarthy and Chuck Schumer and uh, you had two minutes what would you tell them?
0: I don't know if they would understand this, but <laughs> the, the most basic incentive that we as a federal government could create would be to get all farmers to plant cover crops, to literally pay farmers to plant cover crops. What does that mean? Something as simple as that. And uh, there's great examples of this happening in various states across the United States. But at Rodale Institute, there's sort of three core tenets to regenerative organic farming. Number one would be um, to get the chemicals out of the system. Number two would be to rely on uh, bio, biological methods, and that means using, making sure that your soil is never brown. You never leave the soil bare. We espouse something called cover crops, and this is planting crops in between your cash crop that fix nitrogen, that build the health of the soil, that sequester carbon, and that build biodiversity. Uh, so things like rye or clover or Harry Vetch. Um, There's.
1: I saw some of that this morning.
0: Yeah, (laughs) they have funny names. Yeah, Um, but cover crops are. There's many, 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 many countless species of cover crops that can be planted. A lot of times, farmers will plant a mix of cover crops. Um, But that simple incentive of of actually paying farmers rather than paying them a um, our, our, our federal government subsidizes crop insurance. So there are farmers explain, out there-
1: Explain what that is, because this, this kind of blew my mind as Chloe was talking about it this morning. What is, what is crop insurance? How does it work?
0: Yeah, and Chloe could probably do a much more eloquent job at explaining this than I, but <laughs> essentially there is a system predominantly propped up by taxpayers that allows all farmers to be guaranteed payment for what they produce. So if they plant a crop uh, and they qualify for crop insurance, if there's a flood Um, if there's a drought or if there's crop failure from, for any reason, pests, um, they're still going to get paid. Now, what kind of, you know, what, what other profession in in the world do we pay our professionals, um, (laughs) With an incentive to fail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, there's actually farmers out there that have learned how to play this system quite well. And so yeah, there's examples of farmers that will plant an entire field that they know is going to flood. They know it's going to flood, but they plant it anyway because they know they're going to reap that payment. And um, what we're saying is, hey, we're, we're we're all for paying farmers, but let's pay them for the right kind of behaviors. And so something as simple as planting cover crops, uh, ideally not terminating the not terminating those crops with a chemical, but rather with an implement like the roller crimper, which is something that Rodale invented, we can talk about that. Oh. But uh, there, you know, in the state of Maryland, for example, it's one of it's a very it's very successful. They actually have a cover crop program in the state of Maryland, predominantly because there's a lot of migratory birds there, and there's a lot of uh, organizations that got together to lobby for their state government to pay farmers to plant cover crops so that the bird life continues to proliferate. Um, and has that worked and it's been very successful. Wow. Yeah. 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 So something, uh, you know, I guess that'd be my elevator something pitch. as
1: Simple as that. And yeah. I think
0: if I had 30 seconds yeah. to tell um, those policymakers, <laughs> to let's pay our farmers to plant cover crops, I'm sure it would lead to a much longer conversation.
1: Yeah. Our listeners are probably on board by now. They're, you know, they're listening to this conversation like, Oh yeah, I'm so glad you're finally talking about this. Um, there was a piece a couple of years ago in The New Yorker, and Lucy Caldwell, who's a, a friend of mine and a regular on the on the show, pointed it out to us about how some farmers producing counterfeit organic food, particularly corn, um, what is the deal with that? And how can listeners be sure that they're actually buying organic food when it's labeled
0: organic? Yeah. Is, this, that, is that a real thing? This is a huge issue. It's a huge issue. Now, let me, let me start by saying that the, the USDA organic certification is one of the most trusted labels in the grocery store, if not the most trusted.
1: Didn't that come from here? From it Notre was Dame?
0: birthed out of the Rhode Island Institute. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, quick, I'll yeah. say quickly that uh, in the early 80s, there was a lot of food companies that were beginning to use the word organic and adopt it onto their packaging. Um, certain states like California and Pennsylvania were beginning to come forward with a state s- definition and standard for organic certification and every state was defining it differently. There was different rules and there wasn't a unified sort of vision around that. Mm. And so Robert Rodale was going back and forth to Washington, DC, and he was trying to lobby our federal government to create a national standard under the USDA. And almost to a policymaker, he was kind of laughed out of the room and saying, you know, Bob, we totally hear you. Great idea. We see that earn that our food our food companies are, are, are earning a premium at the grocery store for that word. But until someone could show us real science that would undergird and substantiate that organic is even a real viable production method, then we could never create policy around that. So he said, okay. So he came back to Pennsylvania and with his own money, self-funded a study called the Farming Systems Trial. And that is now the longest running side-by-side comparison of organic and conventional grain crops. So it's a 12-acre, 72-plot study. It's been running for 43 consecutive years. And it's looking at the most predominant system in farming, which is commodity crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, oats. And we're using, uh, in some plots, organic methods regenerative organic methods and in other plots, uh, chemical conventional methods. And about nine years into that study, we started seeing some very compelling data. Uh, the USDA said, "Wait a minute, if Rodale's doing this study and they're getting those results, we better start our own study <laughs> because we need to ground truth what they're doing. So the USDA mm-hmm. now has a farming systems trial in Beltsville, Maryland, uh, Iowa State, I believe, there's five other universities that now have a farming system trial like study. Well, nine years into this, um, there was enough substantiation for us to pass the National Organic Production Act. Um, so, policy was created around the word organic, and by two thousand, the year 2000, 2002, we began to see the USDA logo roll out on shelves, and so Rodale could could say that we played a huge role in that in that policy. What's happened is that um, organic demand for organic food has outgrown it's has outpaced now. supply. Yeah. yeah, it's it's approaching a hundred billion dollar industry because. Consumers believe in that label; they trust it, and they should. Because
1: well, what we're talking about here today just like resonates as true when you hear it. it there's a the, you you understand that the that the that your connection to the planet is through this food and uh, yeah, sorry. it's innate and in all it's, of it's, us. It's, it's, yeah,
0: and so there is a a system built around the certification that requires auditors and inspectors and compliance. And there are literal people that go out and visit farms all day, every day, like to inspect, to make sure that the farmers are actually doing what they say that they're putting on the label. And those those inspectors work all through the supply chain. Well, because PACE uh, for demand has outpaced supply, we are, as a country, relying on imported organic, predominantly grain, uh, because people want to eat organic chicken. You and I, if you're a meat, if you consume meat, Um, Or even if you're a vegetarian or a vegan, there are still grains that you would consume that we're just not able to produce enough of in this country uh, because enough of our farmers are not embracing this system. So it's it's causing us to rely on imports predominantly coming in from South America, Eastern Europe, and China. And because of that, there are not enough technological safeguards in place yet, although we're working quickly on it. Uh, that some fraudulent grain is slipping in through um, through various channels. And uh, it's a real issue um, that is being quickly addressed. But I would say the fastest way to address that is to build a domestic supply of organic food. And we're doing it. And there's some, there's some leaders out there. I'll give you one example. Rodale currently has a partnership with Cargill. Yeah. Which makes some listeners may question that. Why would Rodale Institute be working with the largest commodity yeah. producer in the world? It's the, literally the biggest food. It's the biggest company, in the privately held company in the world. It's like hundred and thirty-two billion dollar a year of business. Yeah. But this, but Cargill is seeing the demand for organic, and there are comp, there are brands that n- need Cargill to supply them with grain. Uh, so one example is the largest organic poultry producer in america is based here in pennsylvania called bell and evans
1: oh i've eaten their chicken
0: sure yeah. most of you have if you buy a organic chicken in any whole foods nationally mm. there's a high likelihood it was produced by bell and evans mm. and it's a family-owned business we happen to know the family very well and they lead with integrity and they want they want they need to grow their organic supply chain because they have to feed those chickens feed. yeah and so the founder of bell and evans um the leader of Bell & Evans went to the Cargill family and said, listen, I'm willing to give you a half a billion dollar contract for grain over the next 10 years, but I'm going to do it under two conditions. Number one, I will not accept any imported grain, no imported certified organic grain. Number two, you'll hire Rodale Institute to work with your farmers and your supply chain to make sure that all the organic farmers here in the United States that want to continue to grow grain for mm. you will be trained by Rodale and they'll have access to Rodale consultants uh, to guide them on best practice in organic no-till. And so it's been an amazing relationship where, you know, this, our organization is able to impact one of the most important food companies in the world. It's
1: brilliant. Yeah. (sighs) Okay. Um, is this, I want to, are there other ways that the industry is ramping up supply to meet demand? Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Uh, we um, so I'll, I'll Because we
1: should take it as a good sign that demand is so high.
0: Yeah, and I'll, I'll explain it from my vantage point, yeah. what I'm seeing yeah. and what we're seeing here at Rodale. So we are based in Pennsylvania, even though Rodale has nine other campuses across the United States. Our main campus is here in Pennsylvania. And four and a half years ago, we started building a really strong relationship with our state government, particularly the Department of Agriculture in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is the third largest ag state in the nation. We- are, or were the number two producer of organic food in the nation. I think that number sort of vacillates every year, but we're in the top three and our previous governor, uh, governor Wolf was talking and meeting regularly with secretary Redding, who is our state department of ag leader. And they were having conversations about the future of agriculture in Pennsylvania. And at the time, um, governor Wolf was reviewing the data and he was feeling bullish about organic. He was saying, why is it? That Pennsylvania has over 1,600 certified organic farms that are thriving economically, yet we're taking good taxpayer dollars and bailing out these failing, predominantly conventional dairy operations. Like, what if we were to just reinvest to help farmers move towards a more profitable system, which is organic? So they authored uh, together, Secretary Redding and Governor Wolf authored what was the first ever state farm bill in the history of America. So the farm bill, we're actually in a farm bill year. It's a federal, it's the biggest piece of legislation our federal government passes every five years. But Governor Wolf wanted a state farm bill. And that state farm bill, a modest amount of money invested in transitioning farms to organic. And uh, a quarter million dollars came to Rodale to hire a consultant. Uh, we wanted to get in the consulting business as a nonprofit. We wanted a mechanism to get the science onto farms and have a per- people to actually translate the science. Yeah. So it allowed us to hire one person. And we, we had a press conference in 2018 to announce that Rodale was going to offer free consulting to any farm in the state that wanted to transition even a portion of their farm to organic. They would get free advice, free guidance, hand-holding, we're going to make it easy for anyone. And that was the idea. And so we had no idea what the demand for the service would be today. Um, by the way, the, the leader of that, of this consultancy is Sam Malriott. Sam now runs a team of 17 people. So four (laughs) years, four years later, it's a team of 17. Uh, we are working with almost 500 farms across the United States, uh, and some of the largest food companies in the world. So we are now working with companies like General Mills Amazing. and actually holding the hand of farmers yeah. in those supply chains of the biggest food companies in the world. They're calling Rodale to say, hey, Rodale, can you teach our farmers how to grow uh, certified organic oats and wheat and yeah. um, and other crops, tomatoes, et cetera? And so that, that one en- little entity that started with one person uh, last year single-handedly transitioned over 35,000 acres Amazing. of land in 12 months Amazing. to certified organic and
1: they're year. all young people
0: they're all under the age of 40 to my knowledge um which is fascinating <laughs> many of them are first generation ag leaders and they you know they um they're trained highly trained um highly expert in their fields yeah. but they're all first generation many of them are women uh, they're the most unexpected yeah. experts <laughs> in regenerative organic agriculture and so in many cases, we have these young, prolific women that are on the farms of 75-year-old men in the middle of, the middle of America, <laughs> sitting at their kitchen table on a daily basis and holding their hand towards embracing a more profitable production methodology.
1: This is amazing. Yeah. Okay. We're doing okay on time, but coming up on the end here, and I wanted to get your thoughts about polarization. And I know you're not a, a political person, but we're living in a, in a, in a highly, highly politically polarized time. And when you think about food production, you have major agriculture production coming from California and Iowa, Nebraska, Texas, Kansas, Minnesota, Illinois. These are all very different places. Food is coming out of very different places with very different political climates. And farmers have very different political beliefs from one another. And I wonder what you would say about how changing our understanding of how food is produced and who is producing it could help to Moderate that tension
0: yeah, I would argue that agriculture is the great healer of our time, you know and, and and it is the thing the great uniter and if when you think about the difference between the person consuming food and the person producing the food, um, you couldn't think of more. Polarity, right? Yeah. Uh, particularly when it comes to organic, you know, we all intuitively know that we're not eating well yeah. as a society. And m- many of us that are waking up are beginning to reinvest our money into more nourishing, more nutrient dense food. Uh, you know, I always say that the 26 year old tech entrepreneur that wants to buy certified organic poultry at their local Whole Foods in downtown San Francisco doesn't realize that it was likely in so- somewhere in the supply chain, they relied on, you know, a likely a 70 year old. In many yeah. cases, Republican farmer from yeah. rural America that produced that food. And so if we are really honest with ourselves, we need each other now more than ever. And um, if you really want to put the gloves down and begin to see yourself in the other, I think food is the first place to start. Um, because we have to give thanks, it starts with gratitude. you know when we really connect when we really reconnect with our food and recognize that the brother and sister of ours that produce that food is likely much different than us, thinks much differently, votes much differently, is educated much differently, we can begin to see ourselves in them because yeah. they wake up every morning and they say, "You know what i want I want to make a better world yeah. um, that farmer that wakes up in middle America to produce Certified organic products is doing it because they they know deep down in their heart that they're producing a better world, and they were rel- and we're, they're relying on a market made up of people much different than them <laughs> uh, to make their living and I think that when we begin to see ourselves through the other and the food becomes the common denominator, we're creating a metaphorical table we're we're actually sitting down at a table every moment of every day um, here in this country and hopefully around the world, but I think that this becomes a new way of living when we begin to see our brother and sister through food.
1: This is such a beautiful conversation. Thank you. <sighs> um, is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to talk about? What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you wake up in the morning and think, like, this is the thing I got to fix. This is the thing I got to work on. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: Well, sometimes it feels overwhelming, obviously. You know, we're 100 people trying to change the world, trying to change the way food is produced, and we're doing it. And I I will say that I am so humbled to lead this organization at this moment in history. You know, the people that work here are amazing. Yeah. And people that come to work at Rodale really believe that um, their lives are making a positive impact on people in the planet. And they are. Yeah. And as an independent nonprofit, we can't do it alone. You know, we rely on philanthropy to do what we do. Uh, we, we need to stay fearlessly independent to uphold our integrity. And in order to do that, it's going to take people that are listening to this episode yeah. um, that are willing to sacrifice a little bit to help Rodale move its mission forward. Uh, and so we need help. We need people to join the mission, to join the movement. Uh, we have what is called the J.I. Rodale Leadership Society. It's a giving platform. It's a way that people can literally join the movement. And it's a membership where your philanthropy can help drive our, our work forward. Uh, and for as little as $83 a yes. month, they can join the Leadership Society. And I always think of it this way, you know, how many horrible $83 meals can you go out to dinner with your <laughs> oh, significant other with? I mean, that's- 20. You know, yeah. And so I, I always ask people, could you, could you consider one meal a month that you would give up? And consider flowing that into Rodale Institute, which is ultimately going to flow into a better food system. Uh, I think that to me would be my, my plea uh, yeah. with this audience is to really consider that. And I would be so honored uh, to hear from you.
1: Beautiful. Do you guys do internships? Do you do fellowship stuff like that? I've seen people want to come and actually volunteer with you. Do you? Have we have both. A, for that uh, also? We have
0: both. We have both a highly sought after internship and farmer training program. Okay. Uh, as well as a volunteer, a robust volunteer program okay. at all of our campuses. So ma- no matter where you're listening today, there's likely a Rodale Institute within a few hours. Um, you can contact us right through our web- our website info at rodaleinstitute.org. And we can get you connected um, if you're interested in internships or farmer training. All that information is on our website. Rodale Institute has arguably the best uh, organic farmer training program in the nation. Um, highly competitive, but it's uh, it all again. It relies on philanthropy to do what it does. So, we're, it's a scholarship based program, we're looking to grow and morph that. Uh, you know, predicated on future on future funding, but we're really putting a focus and an emphasis on growing Rodale's education to train the next generation of farmers.
1: Amazing. Okay. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to become a member of the thing, also because you do these uh, farm to table dinners. I think.
0: Yeah. So uh, right? if you join the leadership side, yeah, you're going to yeah. get invitations to epic dinners. Yes. At the Rodale Institute, you'll have a whole plethora of other benefits. Uh, but gosh, I would love uh, to that see all fantastic. of you. Yeah, come come join us yeah, for a dinner. Yeah, I'm absolutely doing
1: that. Okay. Um, Jeff, Catch, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ron. Thanks wonderful. for
0: helping us get the word out.
1: Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcast app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.